Hello again, listeners, and welcome to another edition of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is always brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Vent. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. On to my special guest now, and this lady is quite the star in the fashion and beauty world and a connected one to boot. That lady is Madeline Spencer. Madeline is the founder of Madeline Loves This. On her platform, Madeline covers everything from fashion, beauty and travel to lifestyle and well-being and has over 11,000 followers on Instagram where she regularly posts makeup tutorials and other fashion-related pieces of content. She's also a journalist, influencer, blogger and podcaster all rolled into one and has interviewed the likes of Carly Minogue, author Bryony Gordon and YouTuber Zoe Sugg, aka Zoella, on her podcast Beautiful Lives. She's also a mental health advocate and regularly adv- writes about her own experiences through the Panic Station feature on her website, madelineloves.com. So please go check that out after listening to this pod. Maddie, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. First of all, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank Excellent. you for having me. No problem at all. Um, so the first topic I wanted to kick off with you, Maddie, is mm-hmm. the Madeline Loves This platform and the brand that you've created. Um, first of all, how did it come about and why did you feel inspired to create it? Did you see a gap in the market or was this new type of fashion and beauty media something you'd always wanted to pursue? Well... there's a kind of winding answer to that, which starts with pretty much actually right in the middle of my mental health issues in Mm. my twenties. So I was always, when I was younger, my journalism and writing, they were the things that I was good at. That's what I wanted to do. And I worked in my early twenties. I did some internships at newspapers and magazines, but I always found that panic attacks or feeling stressed would basically curtail my efforts. And I wouldn't be able to finish the time, say they'd given me three months, it would generally get to about two months and I'd start to get very panicked because Mm. I was used to the place I was going to. So I very quickly realised that a traditional career where you interned, then you got an assisting role, then you worked your way up, was not something I was really going to be able to do because Mm. of my agoraphobia. So in my, I was about 26, I think, when I wasn't really a massive reader of blogs, but I was aware that they existed And Instagram wasn't around at that point. But I thought to myself, I don't really care. I mean, I I obviously care about being paid, but that wasn't my motivation. It was that I had this thing in me that Mm, I desperately... That creative spark. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I desperately wanted to do it. And it felt like, I think it was actually making my uh, panic worse that I had this stuff I wanted to put somewhere and I didn't know where to put it. Mm. And I had this desire to just share stuff, you know. Mm. And I'd worked at Marie Claire as a beauty um, intern. Mm -hmm. And I'd always done makeup for people. Mm. So what happened, there was a sort of moment where I thought, you know what, I know about beauty and I know about writing. I'll fuse the two Mm. and I'll just see where that goes. Now, it's interesting that you said you refer to it as a brand because to me, it was never a brand. I didn't even, I quite genuinely didn't think like that. I just mm, thought. Mm, of course, of course. You, oh, you never think like that at the start. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, sure. I, I, there was no sense of any of that for me. In fact, if there were, it certainly wouldn't have been called Madeline Loves This. That mm. was just a kind of momentary, I'll put up a post every day. It will be something I love. You mm. know, it never happened. It's organic. Yeah, yeah for completely sure. Organic. Yeah. Um, so it was just born out of really the things I like doing, which is 
I would say sharing. I probably would go so far as to say over sharing. Mm. And then crafting things. And that to me was just a way of doing something that was in me. And I wanted to get it out, really. And that was a way of expressing yourself. Exactly. Okay. That's you, a much better way of putting yeah, it. it. <laughs> yeah. You, um, you craft the majority of your content um, for Madeline Loveless on Instagram. Yeah. But you're also quite active on Twitter as well and Facebook. Yeah. Um, why was Instagram a channel where you saw the most value for the stuff that you wanted to create? I've always been split between words and visuals. Pictures and words were a perfect fusion mm. for me. And more than that, Instagram, I think, is mostly a place where people... It feels like a community. It's a place where people come together. Twitter is quite um, angry. It feels like a bunch of commentators. Mm. In recent times, yeah. The yeah. commentariat seemed to dominate it a lot, Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there are a couple of titans of Twitter who set the tone for it, which mm. I don't really like. Whereas in beauty, in, or do you mean in, in more generally? In a lot of beauty, but journalism. Yeah. A lot. Um, and they kind of direct people. It feels very mob mentality mm. to me. Um, sort of pylons and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and Instagram feels, yeah, exactly. Like one critical voice on Twitter can bring a person down and mm. suddenly all their followers go for it. Instagram feels a little bit more democratic. Everyone's doing their own thing and you can build a platform there where if people like your content, they'll follow you and then it goes from there. So yeah, I have a lovely dialogue with people on Instagram. I don't have that on Twitter. So mm. it felt quite important to me. And with Instagram, obviously, you know, your field is very much visual. Yes. Um, did you see that marriage being quite perfect in the way that you wanted to sort of express your own sort of content, mm. but also show people how beauty works, how makeup works, how certain brands work? Completely. Yeah. And I also think it's really important to show people me, which sounds, you know, 20 years ago, journalists would write their words. You, you might see a picture in a byline, but that's it. But I think this thirst to know a little bit about the person behind mm. it, to feel, is that the kind of person whose advice I want? Do they have the kind of life I have or the kind of, you know, proclivities I have? And that mm. sort of thing all feeds into it. So I'm quite big on giving, you know, stories about yourself to help people to kind of feel a kinship with you. And that mm. way you have a relationship with them through the internet, albeit through the internet. But mm. it, it, I think it works better that way. Mm. And have you seen any positive examples of, of where you've sort of used that and you've allowed people to sort of see behind mm. that sort of, not not ultra professional yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. sphere, but just get a little bit of a, you know, look into behind the scenes essentially. Yeah. So when I first started it, I was very much, my schooling in journalism was very professional, right? You get mm. the story filed. <clears throat> doesn't matter if you're, got pneumonia or you know or, it has to get the job yeah, done that's very it much the so, job is yeah. done i still have that in me where if i've got a deadline i'm like nothing matters if you have to work until 4am the deadline is met that's mm. the end of that i do get that but what i found interesting was when i first started to say to people you know what i do this job and you know i'll i i've done all sorts of crazy things in the job you know flown to places interviewed very important people been on big programs like newsnight or whatever mm. But actually behind it, there's someone who is screaming a little bit and mm. panicked and, mm. you know, sometimes finds life really challenging. But I've done X, Y, Z and managed to at least get to the point where I can function despite mm. feeling those things. And that was incredible um, in terms of the response it garnered from people, the emails I got, the private messages. And the thing is, I get a lot of private emails and private messages and things like that from people. And I... I'm really quite proud of that, actually, mm. because I think... And you should be. Yeah, yeah, but I think that also if people are doing it privately, it means that it's something they haven't opened up to a lot of people about, instead of it being a comment under something. So to me, that is one of the big things about Instagram and one of the things I'm 
probably proudest of, mm. yeah. And do you, and is that, so you sort of said there before, but do you see that, that as one of the biggest things you're proud of, the fact that people who are not yet ready but will say to you, you know, thank you for doing this, keep yeah. going, you know, keep up the great work, that sort of stuff. Because I think that, that that really means a lot to me as well because I get quite, not loads, but I get, yeah. you know, a few messages about Vent and stuff and it's from people who either either aren't ready yet or can't for various mm. reasons, you know, be open about the mental health or be open about someone who's close to them's mental health issues. And that really means a lot to me because it it means that I'm I'm having an impact where maybe I thought I wasn't having an impact, yeah. if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, what you're doing is amazing. And also inviting people to share stories and open up is a really powerful thing. And I think at one point people weren't aware of the power of that, or maybe mm. it was slightly forgotten. But actually storytelling is the big thing between humans and it's mm. what unites us. So I think that that's something that, yeah, is hugely important to me. And also, God, when I was 14, if I'd have had someone I could have messaged somewhere and said, I'm I'm panicking, you've panicked. How mm. did you manage to get to 30 and, yeah, and, yeah. and survive and thrive a little mm. bit? Um, it would have been really helpful for me. So I'm always cognizant of the person I was who was very isolated, very alone in it, um, and didn't have anyone to talk to, which is why I think it's my duty, if you want to call it that, to be as open as possible mm. as, I, as I can be, because I think that that might help someone somewhere. And if that person had been me, I'd have been so appreciative. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think a lot of the time I feel like when I think I try and keep my 13-year-old, 14-year-old self quite, yes. you know, in my brain, not I sometimes let him out at certain points, but I yeah. try and keep him quite close because he was such an isolated little boy. He was, he didn't know about the world. He was bullied. He was, you know, he was very, very sad and depressed and um close to doing very horrible things yeah and now i've got to a stage where i can look back and say if only he had some friends who he yeah. could talk to about it if only he had someone in maybe in the in the public domain maybe someone close to him yeah. um who could say i've gone through this it's not it's not these are not issues solely linked to you these are not a right of passage you have to do to get through school etc etc yeah so I, I really really echo what you said yeah. um we spoke off air about how you wanted this discussion to go and you mentioned something you went through called insignificant traumas. Yes. Tell me what you meant by that. So it's my belief that when you are leading up to having something like agoraphobia, that there are two things at play. There's both your natural, I want to say inclinations. So if you're naturally shy or introverted, neither of which I particularly, well, I'm slightly introverted, but let's say you're an intro introverted person and that's your nature. Then things happen to you that build a story and a narrative and- About you. you. Yeah. Stereotypes, assumptions. Yeah, yeah. but also but also things that happen to you in your life. So things like, um, you know, I was, I very clearly remember once, I'm emetophobic, which means I'm afraid of vomiting. And I remember once vomiting um it was a December night and my brother's girlfriend was looking after me. And I remember it happening so clearly. And I remember feeling so traumatized as I was being sick. Mm. Now, that's not a massive trauma, but maybe with the right handling of me at that point, being sick wouldn't have stuck in my head. Or become a trauma, so to speak. Or, yeah, or yeah, become a to trauma. The, to the extent. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. if you look after, you know, if a child has the right care at the right time or a young person... Sometimes the things that are, I mean, there are some things that unquestionably are always going to be traumatic, like mm -hmm. grief. Mm -hmm. But things like vomiting don't have to be traumatic. But if you're handled in the wrong way, and I don't, that's not to blame the people who are around me, but just I was not handled in a way that I needed to be handled. Mm. And that really affected 
my perception of being sick and then mm. the next time I was sick it consolidated that so there was, was a sick, trigger exactly it, yeah, yeah. so then that became a thing in my life and for years and years I was completely governed by will I or won't I be sick and it was the biggest dialogue in my head at, at many times in my life so I would go through whole evenings where that was I was fixated on that mm. and I don't think that would have been the case so insignificant traumas I think are not to be dismissed in the mm. whole narrative because actually those little things those little Again, neglects not because someone's neglectful, but because you are an individual who might need different things to mm. what someone expects. So the little tiny neglects can really affect you. Mm. And do you think we, we've, we're slowly getting to a point where the education level is maybe not there yet, but at least getting to a, an, an adequate level where people might recognise that or might see in a, in a teenager or someone whose brain is still developing yeah. if something really traumatic happens to them? to give them that support straight away, to not demean that, to not belittle what their perception of it might be as small, yeah. but their, but the person's, the victim's perception of it might be massive. Yeah, I think we are. I think, say, the work of platforms like Vent is really helping that because it's getting people talking. It's saying mm. to people, let's, let's have this conversation. And also, let's have this conversation in a frank and nice and relaxed way. It's not a big deal, as it mm. were. Everyone has some degree of something. Mm. But that said, I think it's in certain places... I don't think it's reached the whole country yet, let's say. I think I think it's challenging when you have people come back and say, oh, well, snowflakes everywhere. Because, yeah, it's the classic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and I actually think, you know, we are all really sensitive. I mean, anyone who is listening will know that there are times when someone will say something really offhand and it will really sting. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Happens happens to me many a time. That's what yeah, I mean. Yeah. And you're really aware of it. So want to call that snowflake or want to call it being sensitive but I think we need to be aware of these things and you know also make I think if my view on it is that you can't always be aware of what's going to be a trigger for someone of course you can't but you can always listen to them if they say to you I don't like this please don't do that or this I find this hard and then and then it's your job to meet that challenge basically mm. now a big moment in your early life and that was the really you know sad passing of your aunt and if you could just tell me a bit about her passing and the impact that she had on your life. Yeah, so my aunt, I'm my my aunt was my mum's sister and my mum's Austrian. So family was a very big thing when I was growing up. I remember the house was always bustling. It was full, full of people. You'd never have a moment where the house was quiet. It was very strange. My dad's a musician. So one room, there'd be the, you know, saxophone blasting. Then there'd be mm. cousins and there were aunts and they're all cooking and they're talking. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, da, yeah. Da, 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 da. You know, <laughs> noisy, noisy household all, might I add, bonkers in the best possible way. I mean, I'm sure mm. everyone had their stuff that was more, you know, challenging, but they were all characters, you mm. know. So I grew up around these people where I thought this is just what life's going to be like. And then my aunt fell ill when I was about nine. The first symptoms were presenting themselves. And then by the time they found out she had very, very um, bad liver cancer, I was probably 10. Okay. And actually, when my dad told me that she was going to die... I was sick and I remember that the, the conflation of vomit and death mm. and all of those feelings. And when she was very ill before I found out she was dying, everyone went into their own version of shock. But I was at the age where I still sort of believed in, I don't want to say the American dream, but I grew up watching films where, you know, like Annie, the sun will come out tomorrow, everything will be fine. You mm. know, all you have to do is dream. That flagrant optimism sort exactly, of thing. Exactly, yeah, that you yeah. have when you're that age. So... I was saying to her, all you need to do is go for a walk and, you know, just get your strength back. Your body will fight it. I, mm. you know, Obviously, none of that happened. So it was a big moment of this 
kingdom of youth for me, just completely disintegrating. Mm. My mum was very close to her, so she went into a version of grief that was isolating for her and took herself away from the family. And that's not to say she wasn't my mum anymore, but she wasn't actively mothering me. I Mm. didn't have... and, And my grief wasn't really supported because I'm outwardly very tough and mm. I'm able to take on huge challenges mm. but there is a cost for me mm. and because the challenge was no one here is being happy and optimistic and um maybe you know going around the house saying right okay everyone let's mm. play a board game mm. I made it my job to do that at 10 so it was not a very good thing for me to do because the cost of it later on was loads of panic loads of issues with mm. grief and you know, all the things that came around it, illness and all that sort of thing. So I did that job that I probably shouldn't have been doing, but grief works in awful ways. And it really, it really changes the constellation of a family and Mm. the way a family operates. And that happened to my family at an age where I was too young to really understand it and yet too old to be unaware. Mm. So I had this awareness and it became, between then and going to rugby, became a very difficult time for me. That's not to say that there weren't periods where I was very happy. I look back and I remember lovely things. But overall, I would say that was the sort of, um, the scar tissue was laid down. And then it just took a few more sort of lacerations for it mm. really to be a hard thing to handle. And, mm. and years of unpicking what happened basically to me between about 10 and 16. And like I said, the insignificant traumas beforehand setting the tone, the basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. So there, was, but yeah, it was pretty much one of the most challenging things, and something that I talk a lot about in psychotherapy. You know, and and it always comes back often to that moment of grief and how I behaved and what happened, and reckoning with mm. grief. Grief is, you know, it's obviously a very complex and, and powerful emotion, and I think I, we talk. I talk a lot about this on on the podcast and with other people, um, and I sometimes think it's even more stigmatized than perhaps mental health is to talk about because it's so personal to that person it's so complex it's so layered looking back on that now do you feel like obviously you took on a lot of responsibility in the role that you said do you feel like you put on a mask would that be fair to say of how you reacted to it yes but not consciously Mm, and of course when you said about grief being stigmatized I could not agree more and particularly I think the reason for that is not just that I think if you go and talk to a stranger about your grief, right, most people will be like, oh, poor you, that must be mm. awful. They're a neutral arbiter. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Within a family where, where the people who usually support your friends, they're also grieving. So mm. they're acting in weird ways and you're acting in weird ways. And that's when I said about the constellation, I feel like it just, everything you know is completely changed in, mm. in that moment. Um, and I think there is a massive, massive stigma around it when it comes to how you grieve as well. And mm. it's something I've written about where, as well, where I question whether we need to, well, we absolutely need to stop telling people how to grieve mm. or what's acceptable. I know that mm. the stages of grieving are something that people get a bit obsessed with, you know, like, the ten, oh. The 10 stages, yeah, acceptance, yeah, 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 yeah. denial, yeah. all that sort of exactly. stuff. Exactly, all that stuff yeah, you'll go yeah, through, yeah. X, Y, Z. And I kind of feel like, yes, of course there is a pattern there and it's helpful. But people go back and forward and in and out. Mm. And it's not a straight line. It's, it's not a straight line. Not a straight no. line. And, um, and I think films are not helpful for that. You know, films kind of set everything up as a montage, don't they? And you mm. kind of think life might be like that. And actually it's messy. And, and death complex. as well, you think, is like that. Exactly. If you watched countless films as how people die, the yeah. process of it. I mean, my, when, my, when my nan passed a few months ago, I was there as, mm-hmm. as she passed. Yeah. And 
I wouldn't say I was. It was like an eye-opening experience. But it, it you know, I said to my mum afterwards, like, it's not like it's not films. like films, is no, it? No, no, it's not at all. No. And what really helped me through that was, I think, my my family are very much, you know, it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of laughter, basically. Yeah. And yeah. I think bringing up those stories about my nan and laughing about them and, and sharing those memories all the time and yeah. constantly talking about her, not that if she's still alive, but just just reminding yourself yeah. of that. I think that's a really healthy thing. Absolutely. Do you th- what sort of tools or things that have you taken from that experience and used in perhaps other other future experiences of where you've where you've had to grieve as well yeah so i've had so other people have died but not a significant i mean my grandma died but we were expecting it and she was older mm. and i was older more importantly it wasn't a shock um, it, it wasn't, wasn't that, a shock yeah, yeah sure, exactly sure. and it wasn't a, a fundamental a blow to the structure of our family mm. um so but i've had a lot of grief in my love life which i always I used to think it was naughty to say that, but now actually when I have had relationships that have broken up where I felt very sad about it and someone's gone away, it's really reminded me of that grief. Mm. So I did a bit of reading around it and um, it turns out that it doesn't really matter if someone's died or just left your life or you're feeling grief in some other respect. Grief is a kind of very basic, fundamental human emotion. Mm. And for me, the best way of dealing, I'm lucky that I like writing and I like talking Mm. and sharing feelings and ordering feelings is really helpful so writing things down just so that I get from the beginning to the end so you know the feeling is grief why do I feel that okay you know and like you said making sure that I know that my feelings aren't weird they aren't imposters Mm. it's completely natural to feel sad and depressed and uncertain of who you are when bad things happen to you and you sort of have to just let that be the case mm. and it was I think it was at this point if I'm correct in saying that the beginnings of your panic disorder started happening tell me a bit more about that well I didn't realize that I, I had no awareness of what I was doing and, and at the time no one was talking about mental health I mean my aunt my other aunt who didn't die who lived next door to us at the time used to blend like eucalyptus leaves and make you know eucalyptus oils and said oh this would be great in the morning to wake you up and everyone thought she was like a you know at the time aromatherapy was out there you know it was kind of like alternative medicine yeah anything like that anything that sort of you know or even I remember having a book that said you know sometimes take a bath and just relax in it and that seemed to be quite now if you said that people would laugh yeah they'd be like yeah duh obviously everyone Mm. does that but at the time there was no conversation about the things that supported your day-to-day life self-care tools exactly self-care tools or self-care tools that segued into mental health Mm. tools you know and um so what happened to me is that she died and i put on this happy face and focused Mm. on school um that was around the time that i realized i had an aptitude for writing so that helped me quite a lot because i was told by teachers that i was very good at something and that meant that i i'd always been a voracious reader but it meant that i was reading with purpose and i thought i'm going to have something that will bail me out in life and i and i was absolutely right because it's something that has in many many different situations given me something to have to hold on to Mm. you know i can do something this is what i do i write Mm. it gives you a purpose and a pride a, and a, as well yeah yeah, yeah sure. and a place to put that so that was going on but then I was about well I don't say four, 13 I would say yeah 13 and I was my parents would work at night because they had a, they ha- have a restaurant and my dad was at work and my mum was at work I think it was probably a Tuesday night because my mum used to work on a Tuesday and I was watching TV and I was suddenly confronted with a sense of well what I now know is fight or flight but then just felt like the unspeakable 
unbearable urge to run. I could not, I didn't know what to do. It was about 9pm and I just mm. thought, I just don't know what to do. I went to my aunt's next door and I cried. And I and, and then I felt embarrassed at having cried. Mm. didn't know mm. what to do. And I went home and then the next day, and, and this started, patterns started to form very quickly. I have a very, my brain is always looking for patterns. I have to break that quite a lot consciously. Mm. And the next day I was in my favourite class with my favourite English teacher and I was suddenly really conscious of breathing and how I, it didn't feel like breath was going quite deep enough mm. to get oxygen in. And I wasn't having, I wouldn't say a panic attack, but I was very conscious suddenly mm. of breath and how long it took. And, and I would count the patterns. And then the next day I was fine. And then the next day it happened again. And then mm. I got it into my head that every other day mm. I would struggle with my breathing. Mm. And that became, and that, that manifested in so many different ways. Um, suddenly I was very conscious of being sick, terrified of it. I used to carry something called Stematil, which the doctor gave me a bottle of everywhere. And it was a glass bottle. So it meant that when I was horse riding, which I love doing before that, I couldn't go horse riding without it. So Mr. Silverman, who was my horse riding teacher, mm. used to have to carry this bottle. And it meant that I was beginning to feel very other because my behaviours were all safety behaviours. I had to have mm. water with me, I had to have Stematil with me. I couldn't do anything that might prompt nausea. I didn't like coach trips. I didn't like, I didn't do the Duke of Edinburgh that everyone was doing mm. because I didn't want to camp. All of these things were suddenly little life choices that took me further and further away from what the norm was. Mm. And as a 14-year-old, there's nothing more seductive than fitting in with a clan. Mm. And so that made me feel other. And then the panic attack started in earnest, um, mostly at night time. Okay. When I was alone um, or my parents were downstairs, but when I didn't, when I wasn't at school, but then I also started with um, a version of somasis, which is where you physicalize your emotions. So I would think I was ill when I wasn't. I would think that I might be sick when I wasn't. Okay. To give you an idea, I probably was sick once every thousand times that I said to someone, I think I'm going to be sick. Right. So it was often and unrelenting and exhausting. So that's kind of where it all began. Okay. And it's at it's at this point as well. I think that you you've, you've we've mentioned we've mentioned previously that you just you start to discover you have emetophobia as mm -hmm, well. Mm -hmm. So is let's let's define what we mean because we've yeah. obviously talked about it a little bit. But let's define what we mean first, and then how it affects you in your day to day life from you know morning to night. Yeah. So the, emetophobia is an extreme fear of being sick. It's not I don't like being sick. I'm well aware no one likes being sick. It's I make life choices so that being sick is less likely to happen to me. Mm. Um, now, I'm out the grip of day-to-day -day worrying about vomiting in quite the way I used to. Mm -hmm. It used to be that I would wake up in the morning and if I felt even slightly sick, that would become the major thought of my day and mm. making choices to get out of it, having people to support me. So mm. sometimes I would surround myself by people simply because they would comfort me when mm. I felt sick. I, in my love life, I would sometimes have to say to myself, go on this date, you will not be, if you're sick, it's fine, you'll just be sick quickly and have a whole strategy for being yeah, sick. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I'd always have a sick bag in my bag. I'd always know where the loo was, where the exit was, where... Mm. So you started to define your life in many, absolutely. many ways. Yeah. All these things going on in my head were there. And it was only when I was 18 that someone told me there was a thing called emetophobia. And I was like, oh, there's a name for it. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't know? just me that yeah. was like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then through Instagram, actually, that I've met other, or spoken to other emetophobes who all experience the same things. It's a very, like, it's a very, like, you know, there are 10 
bits to it and this is what you feel and it's mm. very um universal the feelings mm. but i had no idea i thought so also one of the things that's helped i think is the peeling away of that from my personality i thought it was my personality it wasn't it's an illness and drawing that distinction has been really helpful because having a name for it and saying right this is my metaphobia this mm. is not me. I am not someone who can't be sick. I'm, you know, I have had things happen to me that mean that this is my illness. Mm. And that's been really helpful. But yeah, it really defined my life. Now it's more, if I feel sick, I'm a little bit, I don't want to say pathetic about it, but I get like a child. I want someone to comfort me. I want someone to hold my hand mm. and stroke my hair and tell mm. me I'm fine. And also there are some safety behaviours still there. I don't get on a plane, for example, um, a long haul travel I find very hard to do by myself. Mm. I would need support for that. Mm. I tend to like to bring someone with me. Um, I wouldn't go on a trip, say, to America just to hang out by myself because it would be too long to get back in case I was ill mm. or if I caught norovirus or anything mm. like that. So I still have some things going on, but it doesn't. it's not every hour mm. and it doesn't occur to me every hour. And with panic disorder, would you say that that's linked to the metaphobia or yeah. it's... Or is it, does it manifest itself in other ways as well? The panic comes with its own variety of symptoms. I would say that they are they hold hands. So um, about, oh, it was 2008 when I started to have this thing where I would have this itchy throat. And I say itchy as if that's just a bit scratchy. It wasn't like that. It was like my throat would suddenly itch so badly it would feel like there was a popcorn kernel stuck in it mm. and I couldn't get it out. And I would cough and cough. And then by coughing so violently, I'd heave. And then that would set off my panic mode. And so there are lots, there's this interlaced um, sense of all of them working together to create this horror show of mm. panic symptoms and, and phobias. But yes, yeah, so they are absolutely interlinked, but they are slightly different, I would mm. say. Moving into your sort of early 20s now, who who is the Madeline that we meet here? Is she mm -hmm. sort of this mature, independent woman ready to take on the world or are... The issues that we've mentioned previously, are you still struggling to come to terms with them? I was still struggling periodically. What I found until my 30s was that I would have a year and a half, two years of panic, have some CBT, maybe see a psychiatrist. It would dial down a bit. The safety behaviours would still be there to a greater or lesser extent. And then something would happen to me and I'd go back into full-on panic. So in my early 20s, I was someone who was, if you met me, you'd probably think I was very vivacious, very happy, um, very energetic maybe extroverted but yeah outwardly. probably extroverted yeah, yeah. yeah um and I, I and that wasn't fake i am all those things i love people that's mm. one of the things that i think has been very helpful for me because i have to be around people because mm. i like them so much mm. but there was a lot of panic and my career didn't happen until my late 20s really i would do little bits and bobs i was lucky that i was good at the little bits and bobs i did so i would get the next thing but there was no um, sense of knowing where I was going. And I think that really also didn't help with the panic. So, mm. yeah, I, I struggled a lot. It was a hard period. Mm. And this particular period of your life, you, you said to me off air, was that you were trying to find balance. Do yeah. you feel like that? that's an accurate phrase? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. 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 And in what sense did you feel like you were trying to find, was it trying to find balance with, between managing those issues and trying to live your life, essentially? Or was it a bit more yeah. than that? In all respects, I was slightly on a pendulum. I wouldn't say it swung so far as to go into like 
drinking loads and drugs and you know I wasn't sort of recklessness yeah, yeah I wasn't Keith Richards but yeah I was going out a lot I was drinking more than I should have done I was definitely definitely dating more boys than I should have done um because I it's all, not always a bad thing yeah I mean I enjoyed <laughs> yeah, it yeah, yeah, I have yeah. a lot of stories but I was doing it as a way to lose myself in because as I said I love people I particularly love dating and boys god that's a real you know problem for me <laughs> no maybe not problem now but it was a real yeah problem yeah sure and I definitely um would yeah I would find you know three dates a week no problem I loved it people now talk about the stress oh, of being goodness. on tinder yeah <laughs> but people talk about the stress of being on tinder I was like it's great you meet someone you talk to them suddenly you're completely absorbed in learning about someone else and I would go away now that's not to say that again that wasn't a conscious thought but looking back I was very much like willing to be swept up in the romance of other people because it it was a a different story to fill my brain with. And was that still part of that optimistic sort of side that yeah. you were sort of... Yeah, yeah it, it came from a place yeah. of optimism. That's mm. the thing. I, I really want to be clear that I wasn't a cynical, um, yeah, I'm just going to sleep with someone because it will take me away from myself. That wasn't mm. the spirit in which it was done. I'm still friends with most of the people I dated at that point. But just that... I wanted to lose myself in it and I loved, you know, like a puppy. I was like, mm. a human, a mm. fun human. Like, I would Escapism. love you. Exactly. Yeah, sure, That's sure. the spirit in which it was done. But but it was a pendulum, you know, so I would go from that to feeling quite lonely and isolated. And actually, the real thing was learning that I have to be fine without any of that stuff. And mm. that took years. But I always think of it in my head as being a swing that has just, someone's just jumped off a swing and it's swinging emptily mm. very quickly. And it slows down and slows down. And I say now my swing swings a little bit, but it's it's fine. You know, it's manageable and it's completely um, fine to me. And, and and my life isn't a roller coaster. And is that how you would describe where you are at the moment with everything? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm in a re- I, the, it's, it's very hackneyed, but I'm in a very good place at the moment. But I've done a lot of work to get there, mm. so I feel quite. I don't want to say justified but my sister will often say to me my sister who struggles a lot with panic will say to me how did you do it mm. why are you so magic there's no okay, magic like, key is there there's, there's no, no magic there's I put no... in a shitload of work yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. sorry I'm allowed, I'm allowed no, yeah, no, so I'll say whatever you want no 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 you can swear as much okay, as you want fine. this don't worry we talked a lot about your work and your own journey. Now I want to discuss something that was a massive part of your life and also a recent tragedy as well, which is your father's and mother's restaurant, the Tirola Hut. Yeah. So if I'm right in saying it was something that was a massive part of your life from an early, like, yeah. early childhood, basically. Yeah. Yeah, is that... And then just, if you could, just tell me a bit about your early experiences of the restaurant and also the incident itself in the aftermath. Sure. So my dad opened it in 1967, so it was there long before I existed. wow, very long time. (laughs) Okay. So my siblings, my brother is 12 years older than me, and he never knew life without the hut. Mm. So we all grew up with this thing where dad would go, it was a nighttime place, and it is... I don't. I have never been anywhere else like it in London. I've lived in London my whole life. It was basically an underground Austrian restaurant where my dad was there every night. He would welcome you in usually welcome you and go hi you know mm, come mm. and sit over here sometimes he'd be like hey you sit there yeah <laughs> he's a character and he would play so you sit down you get you order your food whatever it is it's dark in there it's a little bit like santa's grotto Austrian oh, okay. santa's yeah, grotto. Yeah, yeah. so the minute you're there there's a sense of being in another world it, it wasn't like going into somewhere where you could see everyone you know and in the shadow like a club 
Yeah, it like. <laughs> exactly. But like twinkly. And in the shadows in the corner, you never know who you might see. It could be like the local drunk. It could be Kate Moss. It could mm. be... It was a very strange mix of society that, again, you go to Claridge's, you know you're going to get a certain kind of person usually. You go to a pub, you're local. You, you, you're not likely to see, mm. let's say, Kate Moss, you know, as the example of uber celebrity. Mm. Um, the mystery of it. Exactly. Yeah, the darkness gave that air of mystery. Yeah. And I think probably it might have helped because it Completely. gave people sort of that sense of anonymity, maybe. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So people would go down there to forget themselves, forget their life, or just to really bond with someone. So my dad would play the cowbells, the accordion, the saxophone, the keyboard. Am I missing something out? Um, clarinet. I mean, dad's very God, So he was a, yeah. a wizard. Yeah, he'd pick up anything <laughs> and play it. And you could sing. It was the sense of being invited to a really good party that someone had said, hey, you know, there's this party happening down there. And then you'd mm. go and you'd be like, oh, wow, that's amazing. But it'd be every night. Every night. Yeah, yeah. And... I mean, I used to liken it when I was about 14 because I'd just seen Coyote Ugly, but you know that bar where it's full up and everyone there wants to have fun. Mm, They're all like mm. subscribing to that. And it was that kind of feeling. It was it was full of, and not just for me, but full of love. People who didn't have anyone. In the way that I was saying, you know, on Instagram, I'll get messages. We would have people come down who didn't have family, who didn't have any society. Solo eating as well. Completely. Yeah, yeah. Many of them. And they would become regulars. And people who were completely disenfranchised from life, who weren't people who'd be invited or welcomed anywhere else because they, you know, they had this issue or that issue. Or There was one man who barked, only barked. That was his only communication. But he'd come down all the time and he loved it. And he would just wow. go, yeah. But we sort of, this is what That's I mean. That's quite a story. Oh, I mean, yeah. But not, like, I could give you 25 examples of people that um, outwardly... And he was never troubled. Like, he wouldn't... It no, wouldn't be, no, like, a just, sense where you'd have to, like, you know, say something to him or... He just he'd barked. Just... He saved in my sister's phone as Rough Rough as part of his name. That is extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. You know, most of the time, the atmosphere there was just sheer joy. And then it ran all the time. It, my sister entered the business. My brother worked there for a time. I was the only one, actually. I mean, I've done a few shifts behind the bar, but, you know, wearing my dental. <laughs> but basically, I was the only one who was like, I'm going to do something else. But mm. my whole family worked there. My aunt, who died, worked there. Um, my other aunt met her husband there, and he oh, was wow. a, he was an accordion player. So he, he was it's a family the affair. Completely yeah, yeah, yeah. family. There's, yeah, I, I struggle to think of a family member who hasn't worked there at some mm. point. And then basically on August the 12th, um, my dad just got this phone call saying the hut's on fire. And I then had a message and I initially, I had a bit of a weep and I th- which is great for me, by the way, it sounds awful, but okay I often, vent. no, yeah, but also I often don't feel emotion straight away. So, so it takes a while to process yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, because okay. I go straight into people pleaser and what needs to be done and let's be productive. Mm. And actually to cry straight away, I was like, a psychological breakthrough <laughs> um, but anyway I cried I was upset about it and then but but I didn't think it was that bad you know I thought that some of it might be damaged I thought it was a sort of you know oh, there's been a fire didn't realize it would basically be completely devastated the entire mm. ceiling on the inside had to be hacked through um the bars off but the thing again and that's why I talk about this as being a grieving process it was a complete it changed the dynamics of my family the hut was like a big sister to all of us you know she mm. was there whenever we needed her and mm. the problem is you lose a place like that and you lose a bit of um the character of london you mm. know the soul of it the yeah, soul. yeah exactly so it's it's a big deal for me but also i see it as a big deal culturally as well mm. and what were your favorite memories of the restaurant sort of being in it or around it or uh well it conflates in my head as some sort of frenzied because da- everyone would dance as well in the middle on mm. occasion um i had 
there's a guy who's a very good friend of mine called Graham Dalton and he is from Scotland and whenever he comes down he brings the party but he will often say last minute so like say he'll go to Wimbledon for example mm. and then he'll come at like 9 10 p.m be like he'll phone me up I'll get this phone call you coming to the hut uh well I'm currently sitting in my tracksuit watching telly yeah and he'd be like yeah 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 Just come, out. Glad <laughs> come out and so I'd go down so maybe there were 10 people are there any plans to rebuild the restaurant or sort of resurrect it or maybe make something new? Yeah. What 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 could you say about that? The, well, the will is absolutely there. The challenge is a myriad. Now, our final topic of conversation, Maddie, and it's one that I have with all my special guests, is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, how do you say your mental health is at the moment? It's pretty good now. I have my bad days. I have bad weeks. But I am aware of what my triggers are. And I am sympathetic to myself, which makes everything easier. So if I'm having a bad day, I'm much more inclined to go, I'm having a very bad day. I'm very panicked today. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to let myself not work for Mm. as much as I should or could. Mm. I'm just going to take it off. So I'm aware and I'm kind to myself. And why do you think that's important for all of us to do? I think the the compassion for who you are is the most important fundamental step in being happy in yourself if you've struggled with anything. I think just saying, you know, I've been through stuff or this is my lens in life. So I see it like this and that's why I'm like this makes such a big difference. For me, it's made the biggest difference actually to be able to say, that's where it started. That's why I'm this way. Poor you, not you're a, not you're a loser or a mm. cow or difficult mm. or all these words that, you know, like maybe I've labelled myself with, maybe other people have labelled me with, just to say, poor you, mm. you know, you've struggled. Life is hard. <laughs> um, what age do you think you were when you first realised that the, f- the feelings that you were having inside your head weren't physical and they were actually something that was in your mind? If you could pinpoint a point. Well, I think that I had it. It was a dawning realisation probably from about 18 because, I, you know, I wouldn't be sick every time I felt sick. But then I thought maybe it's a physical thing. Maybe I'm just prone to nausea, mm. you know. But it was when I started seeing a very good psychotherapist when I was 30 and she said to me, what you have is somatosis. And I went and looked it up and I was like, bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> why, why did I not get told why this before? Why didn't I know this yeah. before? This is, and that really helped as well because I was able, while people say it's all in your head, I'd go... People would say, I would say, I feel sick, my stomach hurts. People go, it's in your head. And I'd go, no, it's not. I can feel it. I can physically Mm. feel it. And they'd go, no, no, it's in your head. And then when I realised that somatosis means that the relationship is skewed between your body and your head, I was like, oh, well, that all makes sense. And now I can can talk to my body and say, hey, you're not feeling ill. Mm. I'm going to work with you. And it's alleviated a lot of it. So again, understanding, kindness and knowledge, I think, are the the keys. Like Mm. just those things have made such a difference to me. And if you felt comfortable saying, we've obviously talked about this a lot, but could you, could you tell the listeners what mental health issues you live with yep. and how they affect you in your day-to-day life? Yeah, so agoraphobia, which is not a fear of leaving the house, but a fear of being away from safe places or people. So I can travel as long as I'm with someone. Um, and then I like to bed in like a mole. This is my hotel room. That's my safe space. So I create a new safe space everywhere I go. So I'm fine at traveling. I'm not fine, let's say, at being three hours from my safe space mm, with Solo no traveling as well. Exactly. Yeah. Solo traveling is a real challenge for me. I might, I mean, I can go on a train somewhere, but, you know, I have ways of working it around in my head, but that's the agoraphobia. 
Emetophobia, fear of being sick, that affects me because if I feel nauseous, I, I'm overvigilant about it. I am cautious around it. I'm not someone for who... I could tell you every date of every single time I've been sick in my life. It's a big deal for me. So that becomes a big thing. I don't... I currently don't drink at all, but I never drank enough to be sick. Mm. So it affects my life in those ways. I don't eat shellfish. I don't do anything that is commonly known to cause mm. vomiting. And I'm a bit careful about germs. So um, that's the emetophobia um, somasis, which is the physicalization. Well, how it translates to me is the physicalization of mental um, issues. So if I'm feeling stressed, I might get a stomachache and I won't be able to tell you that it's stress or I won't know if it's physical or stress until mm. I've unpacked it in my head. Mm. Um, agoraphobia, metaphobia, and then panic disorder, which I think is almost like the umbrella for all of those. So when any of them flares up and gives me a little bit of grief, the panic kicks in. Mm. Yeah. Um, what things do you find in life, and we've spoken about this already, that sort of trigger your mental health? So things people might say, sounds, sensations, etc. For me, it's very much not dealing with my shit, which is... Mm. Um, so we can all say that we sometimes are not great at... Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That's my biggest trigger. I can let things, because I have delayed responses things, which I'm, I'm closing the gap, but because I sometimes have delayed responses, I sometimes won't realise when I'm in a period of extreme stress. And it's only when looking back, I'll go... Well, of course I was having panic attacks. Someone mm. had just died. I'd lost my job. You mm. know, all these things. But you don't realise that at the time because at you're time. so ensconced in that bubble, Exactly. Yeah. And also I'm an eternal optimist. I have to say, none of this has made me slightly cynical about life or anything. I'm really quite... That's a, that's a really good thing. Yeah, yeah. but I'm, an op yeah. I'm a blazing optimist and I really believe in that. So actually, sometimes I am prone to glossing over my own feelings because I'm like, it's fine. The right attitude can get you through anything. But mm. actually... I've learned that sometimes you have to be miserable. Sometimes, mm. you know, it's appropriate to cry and to feel shit and to mm. say, I need help. And actually, I've previously tried to just gloss over all of mm. that. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? You know, which ones have you found that worked? Which ones that you found that haven't? Yeah. You know, talk to me a bit about that. Something I feel very strongly about is the that the body and mind are very interconnected. And I feel that it's very, I mean, having access to a psychotherapist is a very privileged position to be in. Mm. I'm well aware of A private of that. one, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. yeah. I wouldn't get one on the NHS now because I'm not actively okay. panicking. You know, like, I mean... Because yeah, there's a spectrum of need yeah. and the exactly. NHS is massively under pressure Completely. as it is. Yeah. Which, I mean, and also because I, I am funding that myself and I can... I have no qualms about that. I'm not complaining about that, but I'm I'm well aware that I'm very lucky to be able mm. to do that. So we talk about my issues in my mind, things like that. But I have to say a lot of the work I do is by myself and a lot of what their advice is, is to do with working things through. So writing, even if you can't write, you know, my sister writes things through. It's very helpful to just go, this was my thought, this is why it happened and that sort of thing. The other thing is the body. I feel like, it's very easy to forget that your body leads your mind as well. If you feel very uncomfortable in your body, if you're not eating in a fairly balanced way, if you're not exercising a bit, if you're not seeing fresh air, if you're not, you know, basically looking after yourself and also your gut microbiome affects your brain. Most of your serotonin, I think it's 70%, but I might not be right on that, but about 70% is produced in your gut. So if your gut is massively full of you know, back, not bacteria because it is full of bacteria, but if it's, say, you've got a yeast infection or whatever it is, it can throw the balance off quite quickly. Mm. So the body, it's important to look after your body. And 
I have found that accepting that I'm not just a brain on a stick wandering around because I was always trying to um, tackle my mental health in my 20s through my brain Mm. and avoiding my body because I was scared of it. You know, my body did these wild things that I didn't understand. It vomited, Mm. it, you know, would panic. Why Mm. is my body doing this to Mm. me? I think Mm. if I could just take my brain away, but actually my brain lives in a body and my body does need certain maintenance things. And also, you know, having a bath, I always say this, but having a bath is one of my real tools to deal with my mental health because getting in a hot body of water, suddenly it's like you're being engulfed in something. And to me, the smell, all the sensations, the physical sensations, change my mindset slightly. So no, if I was in the middle of a massive panic attack, having a bath wouldn't help me. But having a bath every other day and just having a moment does help me to be more balanced. So those things for me are quite important. And just looking after my body and then having the conversations I need to have in my brain and fusing the two. But that's always been my challenge. But I think that, you know, finding the weak spot. So for me, it was my body and trying to welcome it back into the core self is Mm. important. What's the biggest lesson that you've you've found or learned with your mental health? I think it would be to be nice to myself mm. and nice to other people, but just to have compassion and not judge people, not judge yourself. You know, everyone's experiences are a mixture of what they actually experience and their brain. And their brain is set up by so many different things, so many things happening that all come together. So to listen, to borrow from George Michael, to listen without prejudice. The king, really. the king George yeah. Michael, yeah, as we should give him the proper term. Yeah, exactly. Um, there might be a lot of listeners who perhaps haven't got to a stage where perhaps me or you are, um, where we are comfortable with our mental health issues, where we are fairly open with them. What is the one thing that you would say to them or anyone else who's struggling about their mental health and what they could or should do to help themselves? I would say ordering your thoughts is very helpful. So I use the example of writing. I think that's very helpful. Like I said, you don't have to be a good writer, but just, I feel this. Before I felt this, I felt this. Mm. This is what I think about it. It is very, very powerful to externalise your thoughts. And then, you know, you could burn that letter. You can mm. rip I've, it I mean, up. People have told that that method of, to me before on previous yeah. pods. Yeah, 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 yeah. Write down your shit and burn it. You know, mm. it will help you in some way. And also just, yeah, getting that order, forcing order, and also sometimes forcing yourself to write because it takes you out of your mind a little bit mm. and you're, you're doing something physical with your thoughts. Also, just find... If that's not your way to get it out of you, find a way to vent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. find a way to vent. Find someone somewhere. There are so many places now, but don't don't carry this big bucket of stress inside you because it's very exhausting. And there are even yeah, even if you can't, if you don't have access to a psychotherapist, someone find a sympathetic someone and just tell them the shit that goes on in your mm. head. Also, I have to say, if you're afraid of doing that. One of the things I've realised, the more I talk about my mental health and the weird things I think, mm. the really weird, the things that I thought, I'm so bloody weird, I can't mm. say this to anyone, I will have at least 10 people come to me and say, I have I thought that exactly exact the same thing. thing. Yeah. So, you know, obviously don't go for the person who you know is a bit of a dick and is probably not going to listen, but find someone who's, you know, a relatively balanced person or, you know, somewhere like Vent or someone who you think will listen. And tell them stuff and I it will make you feel better and I think you'd be surprised at how many people feel the same mm. or similar we we talk about uh toxic masculinity a lot on yeah. this pod and with the various male, male guests that I've had um 
How have you seen it sort of manifest itself in parts of your own life? And why do you think it's really important that we challenge? Men aren't encouraged in quite the same way. In my experience, men aren't encouraged in quite the same way to delve into their feelings and to air them and to have nuances. You know, it's it's not as easy, I don't think, for men. And mm. I, I think there are, you know, obviously women face many issues, but I don't think that I don't think that means that men don't, you know, mm. and I think it's very easy to forget that sometimes mm. in the in in the world that we're in now where we're talking a lot, rightly so, about women's rights and moving that forward. I think we ne- we can't forget that men are full humans mm. and need support. Yeah, and I think it's quite similar in sort of things like the <coughs> Me Too movement. I yeah. mean, we've, we've the, the, the leaders of it are rightly women and they've been incredible in speaking up, but I didn't feel comfortable in talking about my own sexual assault when I was in primary school by a bully until I saw enough women yeah. talking about it. Yeah. And even so, that's still a brave leap though, because of it. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And yeah. I think that sometimes people do forget that, uh, and it's coming to the fore a little bit more now, that men are victims of sexual assault. Men yeah. can be victims of sexual abuse. Um, not maybe equally as much as women, but certainly yeah. to, to a, a, a similar degree and, yeah, and, yeah. and, and even yeah. sometimes worse levels. So I think it's really important that we can include these conversations and we can keep. Yeah starting these conversations because without that it's just going to be it's just going to be a horrible situation for yeah. a lot of men to be in but sometimes I think it's I mean sometimes I think we're too obsessed with gender sometimes I think we need to just think we're all humans like mm. we are all humans and I know lots of men who are very feminine in the way that they are and the way that they think and I know lots of women who are very masculine mm. and I actually think we're all a lot more fluid and similar than we think. We just need to stop putting people into pigeonholes mm. and let them be full humans with all the feelings. And, and why do you think it's you know important that that more men speak out and are open about their mental health issues? And and can you pinpoint maybe any reasons? We we're, we're obviously talking very stereotypically here, but mm. about why they we found it hard as a gender to do it before. Because the role for men was just, you go to work, you're a father, you're a husband, mm. you are the rock. The woman mm. is the... Even in the arts, I mean, you get, you know, male artists and things, but mm. even in the arts, it's always a man is a man and a woman is, you know, mm. and all these things. The and pillar. Yeah. That, that sort of thing, yeah, that idea, of that archetype. Exactly. Yeah. I'm thinking of a man as being strong and a woman as being, not weak, but, you know... More emotional Soft, or, gentle, yeah, yeah, that sort of stuff. And yeah. actually men have all those tones too. I think it's so important for men to open up if they can, and particularly if they can in public or, more, you know, or among in their friendship groups because it, it it leads the way for other people to do that. You know, if you if you are doing that, you're a trailblazer. I think it's very, very brave because it means that other people don't feel as shamed about telling their stories. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this edition of the Just Checking In podcast. Maddie, thank you so much for being my special guest on this edition's pod and for checking in with me. For anyone who's a fan of your work or who has become a fan of your work by listening to this pod, hopefully, um, where can they find you on social media? What links can you can we give a plug to and anything like that? So my blog is madeleineloves.com. Madeleine is M-A-D-E-L-E-I-N-E, in case anyone's wondering. Um, And I actually, everything is on there. So I put a lot of my freelance work on there. I write pieces for there. And then the Instagram is madeleineloveslist. But you can find that through the blog. So the blog's probably the hub and the easiest place to go. Excellent. And for people who want to follow the podcast as well, where can they go? The podcast is called Beautiful Lives. And how do we spell that? Beauty, new word, full, new word, lives. 
it's also on the blog. So if you head to the blog and you click on the podcast tab, it's up there. So you can find it through there. And is it anywhere else on other streaming platforms it's available? On every single streaming platform. Excellent. So if you told um, Spotify to play it, it would. Excellent. Um, <laughs> as always, thank you to all the venters who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give us a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling very, very generous, write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Thank you.